Welcome to Behind the Bookshelves. My name is Richard Davis, and this Abe Books podcast is dedicated to telling the stories behind books and the people who love them. Today, we're going down under to learn about one of Australia's most famous animals, the koala. I'm joined by Danielle Claude, who is the author of a new book called Koala, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future. Danielle writes about natural history, science, and also children's books. She worked as a zookeeper before completing her doctorate in zoology at Oxford University. Koalas regularly appeared in her backyard, but it was only when a bushfire came close that she started to pay closer attention to them. Her book shows how complex and mysterious they are. She writes about how koalas are affected by disease, climate change, wildfires, and overpopulation. Welcome, Danielle. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for uh, joining us. Um, I don't get to read many uh, natural history books, so one about Australia and the koala was was uh, was a fun read. So my first question is a very very general one, but why are koalas under threat? Well, I think at the moment koalas are suffering a bit of a, um, you know, a nexus of all, all sorts of different threats. So they've obviously suffered a lot of habitat loss um, over the last 200 years. Um, and then combined with that, they have some issues with diseases at the moment that they're struggling with and also um, wildfires and climate change is, is adding to that burden. And the the wildfires, which is something that um, we see getting reported on an international scale, uh, the wildfires that have affected Australia in the last few years, how, how big a threat are they to koalas? Well, uh, uh, wildfires are a common feature of, of Australia's ecology. So we, we've that's that's a part of the the biology that a lot of animals, plants and animals have adapted to, including koalas. Um, but I guess the issue at the moment is that the forests have been reduced to such an extent that there's no longer any safety net when the when small parts of the forest are burnt, there are no areas refuges for the koalas to come from or go to. Um, and so that's what's making them such a threat at the moment that that the forest is so fragmented and reduced. Um, but yeah, the, the fires themselves are also increasing in severity and frequency in the, just in the last 10 or so years. And the scale? I mean, when I see them reported in the news, they look pretty enormous, pretty enormous fires. Yes, look, Australia has does have a long history of sizable fires. So we, we had some but I guess we've had bigger ones in the past, but um, the issue at the moment is when they affect the forested areas. So when they occur across the inland, people don't pay much attention to them because there's not many people in those areas who are impacted. But when they happen on the forested east coast, which is Australia's most populated area, people pay a lot of attention. So those those fires get a lot more attention. Right. And it was a fire that actually brought you closer to koalas and, and made you think more about them is that correct yeah well we had a fire um i live in fire prone areas so i've had fires impact um you know come close to where i live uh, and that's just a part of our daily life is to prepare for that and 
be aware of that as an ongoing threat. But we did have a, a major fire burn through a conservation reserve to to the south of us, right up to the edge of our property. Um, and so that sort of brought it really home to me about the impact that had on the wildlife. And it, again, it was a fire that completely, almost completely burnt out that whole reserve. So there really wasn't very many other places for animals and wildlife to go. Um, and, and so it really made me think about the koalas and, and, and as well as all the other species that were impacted. So when you decided you were going to study them, what does that involve? Um, what, what did you have to do? I mean, there's, I would have no idea where to start. <laughs> No, that's right. It's a really big topic. Koalas are actually, surprisingly, one of Australia's best studied animals. So there's a huge amount of research and then a huge number of um, people doing a lot of work on all sorts of different aspects of their biology. So as a, I mean, I am a zoologist, but I'm I'm more specialised as a writer now. So that's what I do for a living. So as a, as a science writer, my approach was to communicate with the scientists and find out where they were at at their research um, and then try to synthesise that and bring it all together into a readable and engaging form um, without, you know, making, making sure that I did justice to the science behind because it is incredibly complicated in places. Um, but I wanted to tell a story that helps everybody understand these animals, not, not just the specialists. Right. So one of the key points you made is that some parts of Australia, there's an overpopulation and then in other areas, there's a near extinction. So can you explain how this happens? Yeah, that's one of the great mysteries with koalas, really. They're declining quite precipitously on the east coast of Australia, where they're, that's traditionally regarded as their heartland. It's the most forested region. Um, but they're actually booming in other areas, and that's where I live on the south coast. Um, I live near Adelaide, so the middle south coast. We don't have massive forests here, but we have a population of koalas that's been re-established in the you know in the 1960s onwards, um, and they're thriving. Um, so there's a whole heap of factors involved in that. Um, they these koalas have uh, less fewer diseases. Um, but I think that other factors are really to do with the fragmentation of the habitat. So when you have a population that's stressed by habitat loss and degradation and forestry um, and clearances, they're more vulnerable to disease. Um, and those diseases spread more rapidly through the small populations that are stuck in, in effectively in forest islands. Where I live, they're also living in forest islands, but because they're not impacted by degraded forests so much and they don't have the disease burden, um, they tend to overpopulate um, because they're, they're still stuck. They can't disperse to other areas. So, so under slightly different conditions, you get really radically different responses. So you, you, you're referring to that forests get broken up by roads or clear cuts or something like that and, and they can't cross them. Yeah, that's right. And and a lot of the forests are, are literally just islands. Left. Rather than being, you know, a great big continuous forest that stretched from the coast right up to the mountains and all along the, the seaboard, 
of Australia, those those forests are now in pockets. They're just in isolated fragments. So if you look at them on Google Earth, you'll see that they're not continuous anymore. There's great big spaces between them where we've put in agriculture and cities and um, cleared the land. So like most countries, Australia suffered a lot from that. It's just that the clearance happened more recently here um, because of the you know colonialization 200 years ago. Right. So what were the other impacts of colonialization? On well, the one of the biggest ones, yeah, one of the biggest ones for koalas, I mean, there, there is the issue of disease. So there's a contention that um, chlamydia, which is a, a really bad disease amongst koalas, could have been introduced from sheep. Um, it's also possible it was pre-existing in the population. But um, so, so that was one factor, but probably more importantly, hunting was a major factor. So um, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, koalas were hunted for fur and that fur was shipped off to London and to New York for the fur markets. Um, and millions of koalas were, were um, shot and hunted for that for that purpose so and that that only stopped in the early 1900s about 1930 i think was about the last um, official koala hunting season and they were protected after that yes yes they were they, they were efforts to protect them uh, one of the biggest factors though that stopped the hunting of for fur was the fact that the u.s actually banned imports of koala fur and, and other animals into into the US and that dried up the market. So right. um, that was um, Hoover who did that. And uh, Hoover had previously lived in WA and had an interest in Australian wildlife. Okay. Now you also explain about their very particular diet. So it sounds like there's just one type of leaf that they will eat. Is that correct? <laughs> Sort of. It's an interesting thing. We do they, they eat eucalypt leaves, um, so trees from eucalypts, and people tend to think, well, that's just one sort of leaf. But in Australia, there are 900 different species of eucalypts, um, and their their balance of nutrition and toxins um, are very different in all the different species. So koalas eat about 70 different eucalypt species, and of those species, any one koala will eat between three and four or maybe up to 10 different species. So that, so they are particular, but they do also have a, a wide range of eucalypts that they eat. Um, but they're, they're very, very picky about which, not only which species they eat, but which individual tree they will eat from and which individual leaves off that tree at different times they will eat from. So when there's overpopulation, they just wear the trees out. That's right. If there if there's a particularly favoured type of tree and there's a lot of koalas in the area and there's nowhere else for them to go, then those trees start to suffer from overbrowsing. And in some places, they the, the forest dies because of overbrowsing from koalas and then the koalas die. So it's a terrible, terrible scenario. Right. Well, you can tell I'm not an Australian, but I have visited Australia few decades ago and I did see a koala and it was in the typical situation where it was about 20 feet off the floor sitting on a large branch in a forest park and it didn't move it was not moving <laughs> so, so I got the tourist experience but can they move fast when they want to 
<laughs> yes, yes, it is normal to see koalas not doing very much. They spend, you know, up to 95% of their day, they spend curled up asleep in a tree, having a rest. Uh, they have a very chilled, relaxed lifestyle. Um, but when they do move, yes, they're perfectly agile and, and active. Um, they're not. They're not particularly fast movers, but um, they're, they're certainly perfectly mobile. Um, and they're quite acrobatic when they move through trees. But also because they're more active at night, we just don't see them moving very often. Right, I see. I see. Um, are they territorial? Or can males <laughs> compete with another male for territory? Yeah, sort of. It, they do. Males do compete with one another, and they scent mark trees to notify other koalas that they're around. So, so there is a lot of um, there is some aggressive interaction. Mostly, males keep themselves apart by bellowing. So, um, in the spring, in the in the forest, you hear the bellowing of the koalas, which is which is the most common way of knowing they're around it's not a very pleasant sound it sounds a little bit I always say if you if you imagine a donkey braying and you slow it right down and then drop it down as deep as you possibly can that's what a koala bellow sounds like um, and so that's how they keep each other apart but they're not strictly territorial so they do overlap and um, if conditions are positive for them you can get you know three or four koalas in a single tree so you're quite used to that koala bellow sound then if you're living with them close to the edge of your backyard you'd get used to that yes yes we have quite a lot of um native vegetation on our property so we've we've got koalas there um in actual fact when we have overseas visitors we see if there's any koalas around by starting up a chainsaw um and the sound of the chainsaw will often trigger any male koalas in the area to start bellowing wow that's amazing um, so with the current situation with climate change and deforestation, what, what, what does the future hold then for koalas? Look, koalas are a very resilient and quite adaptable species, in fact, because they are adapted to eat a wide range of eucalypts and eucalypts are the dominant tree in Australia. So, so they, so they are a very adaptable species and they've survived um, previous climate change, they, you know, they survived the extinction crisis that wiped out much of the world's megafauna. They've survived severe hunting. Um, I think if koalas disappear, then that signifies that we're in a great deal of trouble indeed. Um, but nonetheless, you know, they do, they do, they're a bit like the canary in the forest, if you like. They, they do tell us that when things aren't going well and that we really need to be taking better care of our forests. And the areas where koalas are disappearing are the areas that still have native logging and the highest levels of land clearance in Australia. And, and that's pretty clearly the major driver of the problems koalas are facing. That must also affect other species of animals as well, I presume. Absolutely. Koalas are very far from being the most endangered species around, but their value as a conservation icon, I suppose, is that they're a flagship species for all the other animals and plants that are dependent upon healthy forest ecosystems, um, and including ourselves, because, you know, in the current issues we face with climate change, the maintenance of native, native forests is really crucial, and we really need to be looking not just at protecting the forests that we have, but also expanding them and, and bringing them back to a, a healthier level of, you know, about 30% coverage. Right. And 
a really broad question here, but what, what do Australians think of koalas? Do they see them as one of their national animals and feel pride in them? Or, or how do they feel I about think them? That, yeah, koalas are really interesting. There are, there are a lot of people who absolutely love koalas and there are just as many Australians who love them as there are people overseas because they they're pretty adorable looking animals and very amiable and and generally you know they don't do much harm to anything so that, so they're really quite lovely um but then there are there are others who have a, a less find them less appealing people you know obviously they're not very popular with people who have timber plantations where they're eating their trees um and some people think that they're perhaps a little bit boring but um, aside from that, I think most people have a fairly a positive or neutral um, response to koalas. Right. I mean, I work in the books, book business. So when I come across Australian children's books, I often see them used in visual ways um, in literature, which kind of shows how much they mean to a certain group of Australians, I guess. I think you know the yeah, koalas are really interesting. I think it's it's because of their posture and their face, yeah, because they've got that forward-facing expression, they, and they look directly. They very often look directly at you, um, so that so they're very engaging in that sense. They watch you to predict what you're going to do, um, and also you know they have that teddy bear shape, um, and they you know when they do. When they they're small and they're concerned, if you if there's a young joey, they'll often you know look to be picked up, um, which appeals hugely to humans. So I think it's that there's there's a lot of connection points between humans and koalas purely coincidentally, um, that makes them very appealing to humans. But I guess we also have to understand how much of that is is our bias and how much of that is you know just pure chance that the koala happens to be like that. And we we also have to appreciate koalas for what they are and what their needs are not just what our needs are in relation to koalas right so i presume the idea that people want to hold them isn't really a great idea um the people could <laughs> tourists could arrive in australia and think i'm going to hold a koala because that's probably not the direction to go yeah yeah i mean as you koalas are one of those animals that you you can get up close to if they're if they're animals that are accustomed to that and comfortable with that and the organizer the zoo running it has done all the right training um for the animal but um the holding koalas is something that most koalas are not that keen on um little little ones need to be held but that's that's for their own protection so yeah it would probably it's probably better if people don't want to hold them just just be happy to be able to get close to them and see them i think exactly yeah okay um danielle one final question which is um uh, what book or books are you currently reading I'm currently reading The Pod by Laleen Paul, which um, um, is a really fascinating a, a story from the perspective of sea creatures and particularly dolphins, which which I'm thinking it, it's just she previously wrote one about bees, which was really enjoyable. So uh, I'm really enjoying immersing myself in the underwater world. And uh, I presume you read a lot for your work. Yeah, uh, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> of all sorts of strange things. <laughs> yeah. Do you have another project on the go at the moment? Uh, I'm 
trying to have a bit of a break actually between books just to just to give myself a bit of space uh, I'd come up with new ideas so yeah I've got a few possibilities and things to think about but nothing concrete just at the moment all right brilliant okay uh, that's all we have time for today thank you to author Danielle Claude for joining us thank you for having me Danielle is the author of a new book called Koala, A Natural History and an Uncertain Future. Thanks for listening. My name's Richard Davis, and you've been listening to an Abe Books podcast, and we'll see you all again soon.